Want to make smart trading decisions fast? Decision Tech from Fidelity can help. You'll get heads-up alerts on market events and insights that can inform your buy and sell decisions. Plus, you can trade fractional shares with zero commissions for online U.S. stocks and ETFs. Never miss an opportunity. That's Decision Tech from Fidelity. Get started at fidelity.com slash trading. Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from $0.01 cent to $0.03 cents per $1,000 of principal. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour from Post 9, the countdown to tomorrow's CPI and all that is riding on that report. And all this is one top strategist now says your best move is to sell before May and go away. We explain, we debate the call with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Joe Terranova and Jenny Harrington, both of whom are here at Post 9. Let's check the markets here. Somewhat muted action. Dow's having a good day, led by Caterpillar today. But technology is lagging. Consumer discretionary is a bit weak. The VIX is at 18. Oil is at 81. All right, Jenny, so we're waiting on tomorrow morning. They just laid out for you what Goldman Sachs is talking about in terms of the print and what it could mean for stocks. And I'll go through that again in just a minute. But are we waiting on that in the morning? And that's the biggie? I think so. But I also think it's a lot of what we were talking about when I was on Thursday, which is starting to move away from inflation. We know that it's cooling. We know that it's going to be persistent, right? We know it'll be in the 6% range still, which is higher than the Fed wants. And I really think that what's going to eclipse everything else is earnings. So I, so while we're looking for that, I think what comes out of earnings is going to be much, much more important and much more telling because it really is time to start looking forward. It really is time to start saying, what, when are earnings going to recover? What's 24 going to start to look like? I know that's early, but I think that's where the, where the investor lens is starting to head. So, Joe, you know, Sarah went through what Goldman Sachs just put out, <clears throat> excuse me, before we came on the air in terms of the kind of print that you may get and then the kind of reaction you may see in the stock market. So let's recall, February was 6.0, okay, 6.0% on headline. They say if you get greater than 6, you're going down 2% on the S&P. Between 5.2 and 6, you're going down. You're going down 1 to 2%. If you get between 4.6% and 5.1, you get 50 to 100 basis points of a rally in the S&P. And then less than 4.6, the outlier read, you get a more than 2% rally. You want to you wanna take that on at all? I mean, it all seems very logical. Uh, statistically, I don't, I don't know the accuracy of it, but certainly directionally, it seems to make sense. I, look, I, I think we're about to go into a hailstorm where there's just going to be an abundance of data that's going to come at us from inflation tomorrow to retail sales on Friday to the earnings reports that are going to begin on Friday through the remainder of the week and the intensity of the 24th to the 28th. It's a hailstorm. We're going to see if there's sunshine on the other side of the hailstorm or not. I still look overall at the market and I still see charts that look pretty good. I see moving averages that are actually turning up, which doesn't seem logical given where a lot of the research notes are right now and how positioning is. You know, some, Bryn, have tried to get a little more positive on the market of late, but Wells Fargo's Chris Harvey is not one of them, and he's not waiting around either for what the print is tomorrow. He says sell before May 
and go away. I referenced that at the top of the show here. We are within spitting distance of our 4,200 S&P target, he says, now shifting direction. Expect a 10% correction in the next three to six months, a front-end inversion, a 7% year-to-date run, and a banking crisis that will likely take an economic toll triggered our reversal. You want to weigh in on this Harvey call? It's time to sell now. Don't wait for May. Well, that's definitely a dour outlook. I mean, let's look at seasonality. First of all, the two best months of the year are April and December. We got, though, in the first quarter, the information, you know, the NASDAQ was basically up 20. And we can go, we don't need to go through all the tech stocks that are up 30 to 70% year to date. And so I think in terms of the mega caps tech, which is still so much of the S&P, we have pulled forward so much of 2023's gains. So I think that makes sense, right? To say, don't wait till May. We have pulled forward in general. I think there's areas like energy, maybe some staples. There's other areas that have not participated. And so I think this is more about tech than the broad market. But I also wanted to put a note on CPI. I think, I think you know, Goldman's note is interesting. But this is actually pretty simple math. You know, CPI right now is at 6%. And for the viewers, it really just looked at the last 12 months and then adds those together. March of 2022, May of 2022, and June had prints of between 0.9 and 1.2. So, Scott, those are going to start dropping off over the next three months. So even if CPI over the next three months grows at 0.4 month over month, by June, inflation will be cut in half to around three and a half percent. And so to me, that's a very bullish narrative in terms of there's lots of cross currents, but I do think inflation is going to drop handsomely just because we're going to kick off those backwards numbers, which I don't really think people in general understand the simplicity of that. So I definitely think it's more of a bullish note to kind of do a counter against, you know, Harvey's bearish bearish tone, which, which may be accurate, okay. but I think it's going to be more complicated than just sell in May. I think it's going to be more about sectors and positioning than just sell everything and come back. I don't see very many people, you know, you guys I'm talking about today doing a lot. As you say, it's time to look forward. As you say, charts are starting to look compelling. Where? And obviously not compelling enough. Well, the market keeps rotating, which is interesting. It's not breaking down. It's, it's, it's going back and forth. Um, it, it's vacillating between, okay, it's the technology stocks. It's the, as you like to call them, the safe haven that they provide versus energy, healthcare, and financial. So you're, you're seeing this continued rotation, but I, I look at everything from the standpoint of what's understandable to me and what's not understandable to me, and then how could I react to that accordingly? I think all the bearish elements are very understandable to me. When I look at the entirety of 2023 and I place a probability on statistical performance, I see the period between July and September as the highest probability of seeing statistical weakness for 2023. That doesn't mean you retreat back to the October lows. It just means it's a soft patch, well, what about a Harvey? soft period. What about what Harvey's saying, right? You're basically at the target that he thought, 4,200. You're at 41, a little north of that. And now it's time to shift direction for a variety of reasons. One is the run you've already had year to date, and then the banking crisis that really has yet to show its face other than for a period of time in which that idiosyncratic issue was dealt with. But the run on effects of in terms of credit and lending, we're just getting a whiff of. OK, so what, what I don't understand will answer your question. I don't understand why the VIX is pricing at 18. I don't understand why 
intraday volatility has compressed so significantly if we're in this hyper volatile environment. I don't understand why we're seeing this relative degree of calm in energy in the wake of OPEC announcing such a significant action. Well, we're so, above 81 bucks, though. What do you mean calm? I mean, yes, we, well, we not, after the initial burst that we got, been we've calm, been Scott. sideways, mm-hmm. but we're still holding you know, above 80 bucks. The high price point, though, came that Sunday night off of the, the announcement. We haven't exceeded that high price point. So collectively, when I say, okay, what do I understand? What don't I understand? It's easy to understand the bearish elements, which guess what? Leads me to believe that the market still has some room to the upside. The top of the range has been 4,200. I could see the market going there because I don't think people are positioned for it. What happens from there might be a false breakout, might not. But I still think there's more room to the upside here through the month of April towards that price target. You so, think so too? And so what happens if you do push higher? You get to fight. So some said, okay, maybe I should sell at 4,100. So if you eclipse that and you get to 42, is that the next line in the sell sand? Well, I think this is why this year is so difficult, because Joe and Bryn are right. The market's vacillating. There are cross currents. And so Chris Harvey could very well be correct, right? We could be down 10% from here. And that's plausible. And what would that mean? That would mean that we're at, what, about up about 7 8% right now. So the market might be down a little bit. And so that would feed into this narrative that I've had going for a while, that the market is ultimately range-bound. I still think we're going to end the year in positive territory. But it's a hard slog because, to Joe's point, there's a lot of bearish things out there. And those are easily understandable. You prepared for the for the S&P to go down 400 points? I mean, you know me, I'd kind of love it because I'm always... Well, I mean, I'm, everybody <laughs> says that until it actually happens. That's true. And you hate dealing with the client side of it, but it creates all these wonderful buying opportunities. And I'm sitting on some cash and waiting for some buying opportunities. So part of me kind of really wouldn't mind that. But then to Bryn's point, where there's some positive and, and, and bullishness, I think the bullish things out there are complex and they're harder to understand than the bearish things. One of the things that makes me most positive actually right now, and this isn't saying I think the market's got a leg up, it just means that I think we'll end the year in positive territory, is the overwhelming negative sentiment. And you see it from all these strategists. And no, I got the more of them. Side. I mean, look, I, yeah. I don't, we're going to decide and we're going to find out as to whether, Joe, it's justified, whether it's, you know, Torsten Slock talking about commercial real estate. Quote, with the commercial real estate bubble bursting, we're likely to enter three years of low growth, similar to what we saw after the housing bubble burst in 08. Michael Hartnett yesterday, B of A. You know what commercial real estate is? It's a boa constrictor tightly wrapped around the economy, suffocating growth for the next two years. Autos, Wall Street Journal headline, after a boom, auto profit bust looms. Weekly auto dealer supply running 70% higher in March than a year ago. Dealer discounts 3.3% in March. That's almost a percentage point higher than a year ago. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, even the guy who yelled at me the other day, Brian Belsky, sounds a little downbeat. Quote, for the first time in many years, our enthusiasm for stock market performance potential this year is relatively tempered. And that's the guy who gave me the business the other day for you know, not embracing the idea that there's, earnings were going to be better than a lot of people think. There's, there's every reason to be concerned about the consumer because credit conditions are tightening dramatically. And that is a very uh, problematic scenario in terms of commercial lending. Uh, we've been talking about that for the last six months. I, I think you're going to be having a conversation as you move through 2024, whether you actually have to subsidize the commercial real estate industry or not, I'll leave that for a political debate, but I think that's coming. 
down the line. Um, I, I think that that collectively, you know, hearing 3,600 and, and, you know, Jenny says that's a, a fantastic opportunity. OK, what does it do? It really introduces what's been missing from the entirety of this process in January 2022, and that's price capitulation. We've never had price capitulation. I don't know. Maybe that's where we need to go with all of this. Maybe we need to, at some point, have that price capitulation that finally invites know. the buyers in from the, from the sidelines. And it also not just pauses the Federal Reserve, but, but literally takes the Federal Reserve and motivates them to sit for a very long time the, on the sidelines. The other idea is, I think we discussed this yesterday, of... The soft landing crowd isn't ready to fully leave the building. And maybe it's in part, and maybe the market is reacting a little bit as it is as we're having this conversation because Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, is speaking at a news conference ahead of the World Bank IMF spring meeting in which she says the U.S. economy is obviously performing exceptionally well, sees solid job creation, inflation gradually moving down, robust consumer spending, not anticipating a downturn in the economy, although that remains a risk, a risk, excuse me, and that many of the risks related to Russia's war against Ukraine and, and the global uh, outlook. So, I mean, that's the Treasury Secretary on the tape as we speak. There are some who still, Bryn, believe that despite all of the headwinds, whether it's the banking crisis, whether it's commercial real estate, whether it's a slowdown in autos, whether the consumer's going to roll over, that we can avoid a hard landing. And that perhaps is why you haven't had a capitulation to use the word that Joe used. Well, you need you need an event, right? And if you look back since 1985, every recession we've gone into, there has been an event that that created it. And so whether the regional banks were the event and we're just seeing the cracks that we put duct tape or the Fed and the Treasury put duct tape over that, um, we'll find out over the next few months. But I think it's really clear that the economy is going to be slowing. The commercial real estate is part of it. Commercial real estate was already in a recession. Or office, sorry, office was already in a recession. Office makes up 25% of commercial real estate. And so I don't think these headlines that make this one asset class homogeneous are accurate when it's very heterogeneous. And I think as it relates to Treasury Secretary Yellen, with all due respect, you know, Jay Powell also said in March of 2022, we don't anticipate having any 75 basis point rate hikes. And so I think they have very good and they have very good thoughts about it, but they've been incredibly wrong about what actually happens. I think invest investors should really understand the long and variable lags when the Fed stops, whether it's in May or June, in terms of Fed rate tightening. We are just going to have to see what's left. And I do think that's a fine. contraction is going to happen. That's so fine. I just but what, what yeah. if the soft landing crowd actually turns out to be right? Are you going to well, wait until the soft all. landing crowd is right? Or are you going to try and anticipate that ahead of time Ooh. if the you know, stars, so to speak, start to line up a little bit? Well, we're already invested, right? And so the way we're invested is defensively where we have about 45% of our portfolio with out-of-the-money calls. And so where that gets us, if we all of a sudden get the market shoot through 4,300, go back to 4,548, then in that time period, if it happens very quickly, we'll underperform. But we also have a lot of other ingredients. So we're not sitting here in cash waiting for something to happen. And I think that's the dangerous thing for investors if they're trying to time this. Because that, to your point, if the soft landing happens, if we don't get 
these events occur and earnings don't drop off a cliff, then sure, we could continue to have a good year. Because you know what? We're in the third year of a presidential cycle. That's the best year. Earnings have not fallen off. Tech is in good spot. And outside of the regional banks and smaller companies, large cap U.S. companies, they are not really affected by higher rates because they locked in rates two years ago. And so there's definitely lots of good things to, to be positive about. And so to, just to close my thought, I don't think you should be sitting in cash trying to time this. I think that's where you get in trouble. Sure. But Joe, I mean, I, I guess my point partly is, you know, if you get one of those more positive reads tomorrow morning and then you want to couple that with the Yellen comments, you know, moments ago, therein lies the softer landing story, right? You get a cool read on inflation, but yet the economy is still relatively decent, despite what the leading economic indicators have said. Um, you know, everybody wants to predict and call for the next recession, and it remains to be seen at this point whether we actually get it, and if we do, how deep it is. I'll, I'll, I'll take it, because I've told you at the top of the show that I think the market could go towards 4,200. I'm positioned with a tilt towards a soft landing, owning uh, energy and, and health care. Um, I'll take it. Do I trust it? I'm not so sure I trust it because, you know, you'll get retail sales on Friday. In the coming months, you're going to get a better read on what the economic activity is in the wake of the banking stress that we saw in the middle of March. I don't think we truly have that. So I'll, I'll, I'll gladly accept it, but I don't trust it. I get you. But, you know, Jenny, last week we were ready to you know, write off industrial stocks and more cyclical stocks, right? Every read last week on the economy was kind of ugly, right? And then, okay, so if you believe, like the secretary says, that, okay, the economy is still strong, not looking for, you know, a big downturn. Industrials are up about 1%. I think they're at the highs of the day now. I mean, these are the kind of trades you need to think about depending on the outcome that you're predicting. Right. And that's the hard thing about saying last week's numbers were ugly because next week's might be great. And that's that is simply the period we're in with these conflicting signs. But, Scott, I've got to go back to this commercial real estate comment for a minute, because what's really upsetting to me is when we read what what um, Torsten Slock is saying, he says with the commercial real estate bubble bursting, if you can, can you guys put up a picture of Boston properties? Let's use Boston properties as like the bellwether for commercial real estate. State. What you'll see with that stock, the shares are trading at the same price they were at in 2009. How can a bubble burst when the stock's flat over 15 years? Or has it already burst? So all these really terrible calls are actually, you know, for, for things happening, to, you know, and, and being a sign of what's worse to come and all the terrible things to come. This is what's challenging, is nothing's moving with symmetry, right? These stocks are already down. These stocks have already anticipated so much horribleness that they've put us back to 2009. And so this is the challenge of waiting to say, oh, I want to wait until the market hits 3,600 or it might get to 4,300. No, just buy the Boston property stock if that's what you want to buy now or buy SL Green. Maybe now is the time to buy commercial real estate. One of my other beefs within this is even within commercial real estate, you've got multifamily homes that are booming, well, right? Look, you, you've got you, single family you the that's other in day, a recession. You, you the other day went through mm -hmm. some picks within, you know, dividend plays, but also in what you would consider, you know, what was it, office, or not office, uh, government, right. government um, right. REITs uh, that were going to do, you know, well. And there was a postal stock that we, we talked about right. that, that was doing well. I'm not saying that everything should be lumped no, together. No, but I'm just saying these calls are very inflammatory. 
right? Well, there are, legit, there, there are legit, there, there are legitimate, the there are legitimate concerns. Are there not about commercial real estate? Okay, yes, but I would argue that the share prices have already reflected so much pain and so much horror. So at this point, if you're going to try and draw an analogy between them and 2007, housing was still, if we were at that point, housing was still way up. I just think it's a bad analogy. I think we're overly dramatizing what the downside risk is, and it just comes back to everything moving asynchronously. So to I, your point, good economic data last week, or bad economic data last week, good economic data this week, that's the environment that we're in for. I, I think it's interesting because because they think it collectively a conversation about commercial real estate is what? Deflationary in its nature. What occurred in March with the banking industry? Deflationary in its nature. So I go back to this big disinflationary shock that actually helps the Federal Reserve combat inflation. Bryn? Yeah, well, I mean, I think also, I do think it's inflammatory because once again, office is 25% of the sector. But, but listen, everyone called the death of the mall when Amazon was coming on and we were all we were all continue to spend. Are malls dead? No, they've been repurposed. And so I think office buildings are much harder to repurpose than than a mall. But it's the same type of same type of analogy. And so what we have to understand is that if a private building, the developer gets wiped out, it's because the employees inside of there are more work from home. So it's very different in terms of how does that actually affect the consumer or the or the or us as in the U.S. It really doesn't because it's not like we're getting laid off. It's that we have more work from home, and so we don't need those big office spaces anymore. So I think more about the weakness that we're seeing. To Jenny's point on these publicly traded ones, I think the majority of real estate that was not publicly traded, it's private, and that the fear is that in the private market these transactions aren't happening, and when they do, that's going to put a dampener on. On, on growth and GDP, which I think really it ends up putting a dampener on the regional banks. And to me, all roads lead to the regional banks because they're still the big lenders and they're gonna have to deal with this. And that's where I think that you haven't seen these regional banks really bounce because there's still so much negativity that we have to deal with and they are at the eye of the storm. I think if we do have an event occur. Joe, regional banks looking at them right there, KRE uh, charts at the high of the day. Um, it, it seems like all of the, quote unquote, more risky economic parts of the market are bouncing on the Yellen comments today, whether it's, you know, the industrials, you didn't want to buy cyclicals last week. Industrials were the worst sector last week. They got a bid yesterday. Now, now they're at the highs of the day. The regional banks, you know, the, the pressure points. That's not the medicine that the regional banks need, by the way, because if you think of the assets, that are sitting on their balance sheet. What direction do they need treasuries to go? Do they need to see yields moving higher, which in fact is what's occurring here in the last two days? No, they do not. So that's not the medicine for the regional banks. I'm not there with the regional banks. I haven't been since March on the network talking about uh, picking a price entry point for regional banks. I think you have to sit, I think you have to wait. The only bank that I've added to since the stress has been introduced into the economy and into the markets has been JP Morgan. I feel that they're relatively, relatively immune, not totally immune, but relatively immune to what's ahead. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's take a quick break as we look at shares of JP Morgan. Up next, a pop for one retailer on better than expected earnings. It is an autoplay and it is on track for its best day since November. Jenny owns it, which means she trades it next.
calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Our chart of the day, CarMax. The shares are surging today after earnings and gross margins beat estimates. It's the top performer today. In the S&P 500, Jenny Harrington owns it. Look at that, 11%. Love Best it. day uh, in a long time. So it's interesting. This really is totally perfect for the conversation we were just having, which is CarMax was, I believe, oversold, overly discounted. JP Morgan hated it. They thought that they were actually going to lose money going into this quarter. Expectations were for 24 cents. They actually delivered 44 cents. And what's interesting here is CarMax is all about volumes. So they had a tough time in the last year when interest rates were going up and inventories were low and it was hard to get cars. So now interest rates are starting to come back down. That should actually be positive for their earnings for the future. And I think that's- Do they have too many cars now? No, I think. Right, right. Kind of remember that auto stat that I read you early on yeah. in our show. I, I think they're okay, and that's the difference. You know, I was toying with buying Ford a few weeks ago and really couldn't pull the trigger on it. And part of the problem with that is, if Ford has too many cars, they have a huge problem, right? Because it costs a set amount, and when they actually need to take a discount, that hurts them a lot more. CarMax, because they don't have they don't have that capital um, expense that Ford does. Like all they need to do is just create a lot of volume and make money off of their volumes. They don't have those same problems. So a lot of inventory actually benefits them pretty well. Also, if we are in a dampened or weaker economy, what are people going to do? They're going to buy used rather than new and just save those extra dollars. And you think that benefits KMX? I think so. So what we see, too, is um, earnings are now at about just shy of $3 a share. There's expected growth of 36% this year, 25% next year. So you really see, you see the asymmetry in the market here. And you see the asymmetry of the consumer. So maybe we do have the consumer weakening, which we've talked about, but they still need a car, right? And they're going to buy a cheaper car. It's just a rebalancing and a recalibration of how and where money's spent. Hey, Bryn, you like the stock, CarMax? You better. Well, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, well, let's let's go with Jenny. But I, but I will say that used cars in general are rebounding. We're going to see that in CPI tomorrow. And so, as everyone thought that you know used cars were going to continue to be a deflationary force in CPI, we're going to start seeing that tomorrow. I just got the data yesterday. 
of just in general, they're going prices, they're going higher. And so I think to Jenny's point, if we're going into a contraction and people are, are tightening their belts, they're gonna go buy used cars. You, new car prices are so expensive. And so I do think this is a trend that can last like a CarMax or an AutoZone. Those stocks probably continue to get a bid as we continue to get potentially a slowdown in the economy as a whole. You had this before, Joe. You've been out of it for a little more than a year. Yeah, um, was a losing trade. Uh, was put into the ETF around 135, out at 111. I think July of 2021, it went in. January of 2022, it went out. Uh, to, to Bryn's point, though, on unused car vehicle pricing. So the last several months, you're seeing an uptick. Now, year on year, used car prices are down nearly 9%. I think CarMax benefits here because they're building inventory in the third quarter of 2022 and a little bit into the fall. And now what are they doing with that inventory? They're selling it out as prices are, are going higher. So um, I, listen, I, I think cost efficiency is a strong story here with this company. It's a higher margin business, certainly above Carvana, which has that infrastructure cost. So I'll, I'll take CarMax over Carvana. I'm a little skeptical, a little suspicious that they'll be able to maintain this type of a strong earnings report over the comings quarters. So it's a little bit of a prove it story to me. I think it's April 20th. Auto Nation's going to report a ridiculously cheap stock. You like that better than I, I'd keep my eye on, on I keep my eye on Auto Nation. Yes. You have a, any kind of last word on that? No, not really. I think I think this is the space you want to be in. You want to be in the auto retailers, not in the auto manufacturers. I wonder what the uh, what's the valuation of Auto Nation relative to KMX, you know? I think AutoNation is slightly cheaper, but I don't know. I don't know. All right, we're going to look that up. Not- <laughs> I don't know. It's got a PE that looks real low, like single, mid-single digit, five to six for AutoNation. KMX, as I look at it right now, is, is definitely higher than that, yeah. about two or three times uh, that level. All right, let's take a quick break. Coming up, consumer discretionary stocks. They're, taking, uh, they're beating the broader market this year. One big player just got a new buy. It's a really interesting timing, too for this specific call on this specific company. We discuss it next. Then coming up today, 1 p.m. Eastern, we do have a virtual CNBC Your Money event, Women and Wealth, and you can still register at cnbcevents.com. You can scan the QR code on the bottom of your screen as well. We're right back on The Half. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mowing Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner, too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Christina Partsnedlis, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Congressional leaders known as the Gang of Eight will get access to classified documents found in the homes of Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and Mike Pence. Congressional lawmakers have been frustrated at the lack of information provided to them so far, saying the preliminary briefing they got in February, quote, left much to be desired. 
President Biden departed for Northern Ireland this morning to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which ended 30 years of violent conflict in Northern Ireland. Biden will meet with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on Wednesday and later travel to County Luth, which was home to his maternal ancestors in the 19th century. And one of Russia's most active volcanoes erupted on the Kamchatka Peninsula on Tuesday, covering villages in volcano, volcanic dust and triggering an aviation warning. There are no immediate reports of casualties, but some regional leaders are ordering residents to stay inside. Scott, back to you. All right. Christina, thank you. Christina Partsinovola. It's time for our call of the day. It's Whirlpool upgraded to a buy at Goldman Sachs. Target cut to 160, though, from 170. They say current valuation provides an attractive entry point. Now, I find it an interesting time to upgrade a stock like this in a space like that, right? We're just having a conversation about whether the economy is going to have a recession or not. And we're upgrading a stock of, you know, a company that sells big, pricey, durable goods. Right. And we're also having a conversation about about the market overshooting on individual companies. And this is one where I think they've overshot. I think the Whirlpool stock is anticipating a very, very hard landing. And what kills me about this upgrade is, you know how I keep telling you all, I've got some cash in my pocket. I've got a short list of really high quality companies. This is on it? This is on it. And I'm the, I'm the dummy who didn't buy it last week ahead of well, Goldman's upgrade. Well, you buy upgrade. it 134, you still <laughs> get it for below their price target of 160. Right, and I could still get a 5.4% a yield, which isn't bad. Um, but this is where, it's really hard, right? I'm looking at the stock. We've done all our research. We're ready. I want to buy Whirlpool. I'm comfortable with this valuation. I want that 5.4% yield. But, but then, I mean, but then I listen to Chris Harvey, and I think, oh, well, if he's right, and if I'm right, that he's plausibly correct that the market could be down 10%, maybe I get it 5% cheaper. And that's when you get greedy, you know. And I might, and maybe I, maybe I could have had an extra five or 10% in this stock in my pocket. Are you gonna, are you gonna fight over five, six bucks? Well, you know me, I'm greedy, so I do. Um, but I think it was a dumb move. I should have bought it last week. I think this is where where you really need to say, yeah, the stock is overly anticipated. It's interesting. You can look at their earnings. Their earnings are significantly higher where they were than 2013, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the stock's trading at the same price as 2013. It's really overshot on the downside. Jenny? Yeah. And to make an omelet, you got to crack some eggs. That's right, baby. The 52 week <laughs> low in the stock was 124. It's 134 right now. That's 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 an easy easy trade to make, especially as you yeah. said with a 5.5.3 dividend yield. Uh, this company's got very strong free cash flow generation, mm-hmm. nearly 800 million in 2023. They recently divested the Europe, Middle East, and Africa business, so that that's going to be positive as well on their on their cash. Um, it's a stock that universally, I think, has had bearish sentiment. Not very many buys on the stock, and the average price target, I think, is 150. So again, it goes back to what you can not understand. Not much coverage. But it's for not exactly what you yeah, said. There's, there's three buys, three holds, and two sells. Three buys. And I, they admit, look, they're, they're, it's not like they're naive in, the, in making the call. They know. Like, although they, this is what they say, quote, although the near-term path is likely to remain mm-hmm. choppy, we believe the current valuation provides an attractive entry point. So they say, okay, Jenny, even if you believe that Harvey might be right, it's still an attractive entry it point, is. which you admit. You just need but to be patient. But you know what? It's interesting. Joe said something really smart in the beginning of the, uh, the show, which is that the bear case right now is easier to understand than the bull case. And maybe that's it. Because what did you say, Scott? You said, why would you want to buy a big, durable goods company in this kind of market where you've got a weakening consumer, you've got potential for downside? I'm not so, saying why would you. I'm saying that's a legitimate question. Uh, to sorry, why yes. you would Costco. put a buy yes. call on a stock like this now. 
Right, and then that's where we as analysts, we as portfolio managers need to identify mispricings. Right. You know, and then grit our teeth, bear it, and tough it out until it improves. All right, we I are. Think, I think I need to pull the trigger. Okay, <laughs> you let us know when you do. I will. Uh, it sounds imminent. Maybe before the show's over. I, don't <laughs> I can't know. do it that All fast. right, shares of Moderna <laughs> pulling back today, now down about 15% this year. The headlines, the trade, we'll do that next. Grade my trade. Send us your latest stock move, and the investment committee will debate it and grade it. Email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com or tweet us, hashtag grade my trade. All right, we're back. Shares of Moderna, there they are, about 4% lower today. After that, company said it is delaying its flu vaccine. Our Meg Terrell following this story for us. Meg, this was always the risk uh, for a company that uh, has had said from the outset that it wants to do so much more than COVID. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. There's a lot of sort of debate over whether they will be able to move successfully beyond COVID. And one of those nearest term opportunities has thought to be seasonal flu vaccines. They're trying to develop mRNA versions of them. Well, they've been running a phase three study, actually, two, one in the southern hemisphere, one in the northern. And an update from the northern hemisphere study today, they said they didn't have enough cases at this interim efficacy analysis to declare early success and at least stop the trial now. So an independent data monitoring committee suggested they keep going uh, in order to look at that efficacy readout of whether the vaccine really does prevent cases of flu uh, better than existing shots. Now, their immunogenicity analysis showed superiority compared with on-the-market vaccines against influenza A, uh, which is the most common form of flu, and non-inferiority against flu B, which is actually a better result than we saw in the Southern Hemisphere study. Still, that is driving shares of Moderna lower today as we are not getting that positive readout right now. The company also providing longer-term sales forecasts for their respiratory products, $8 billion to $15 billion in 2027. The sort of feedback I'm getting on that is that's positive, but there's not a lot of visibility into what the future looks like for Moderna. Importantly, Scott, we are talking about respiratory vaccines, but this weekend, Moderna is going to have an update on its personalized cancer vaccine. That data really drove the shares a lot higher back in December. Uh, That program is partnered with Merck. We will get an update. So Monday morning, that's going to be something to watch closely for Moderna. Scott? Yeah, which we will. All right. Great stuff, Meg. Thank you. That's our Meg Terrell uh, covering that story for us today. Bryn, you own the XBI. I mean, it just, again, underscores whether you own Moderna or, or not. It just underscores the risk of, you know, investing and thinking a lot bigger when it comes to some of these stocks. There's just inherent risk, maybe more so than most other areas of the market. Yeah, Moderna is a little bit different. I mean, Moderna has, I think, around an APE they have a huge free cash flow yield. They're, I mean, they're a very real company. They're not the typical biotech company um, with no earnings, no free cash flow yield. But like XBI has been a terrible performer this year. It hasn't even remotely moved up with high beta tech. And so I just continue to sell like $85, $90 out of the money calls and get some income while I wait. But I think with biotech and Moderna specifically, it's like this is a really tough space. I mean, when they talk about a cancer vaccine, that sounds promising. We've made very, very little traction in actually, you know, cancer over the last few decades. And so that is the promise. These are great stories. But ultimately, to get the stock, you know, out of the 150s up higher, you're going to have to have real news about new drugs. But in the meantime, I think you do have some value folks at this level. This stock does look interesting because it's been basing around this level all year long. Yeah. All right. Still ahead, a special Grade My Trade Congressional Edition. We will explain when the halftime report comes right back.
57 or so. Of course, we're waiting for tomorrow morning CPI. Let's bring in CNBC senior markets correspondent Bob Pisani. So we're uh, we're on the cyclical trade again. I find it hysterical that we're in the middle of the cyclical rally. And what are the strategists doing? They're all running from the cyclical right. rally. They're all trying to distance themselves from the soft landing. You were maybe maybe about, that's why we're having a cyclical rally. Yeah, exactly right. That's why I'm bullish. To Brian Belsky earlier, <laughs> yeah. our, our friend, an optimist for years and years, he was sounding very let's just not say pessimistic, but a little more cautious. Yes, I would say that. And and Costin was on this morning. Sarah was pressing him. Are you going to bring your numbers down? Well, no, no, no. But he was looking in that direction. Chris Harvey at at Wells Fargo, he's got a $4,200 year end target. He's saying we expect a 10% correction to 3,700 in the next three to six months. So I'll tell you what the problem is. Put up the estimates for earnings, and I'll show you why this is causing a lot of anxiety with the strategist community. Put up uh, the 2023 earnings estimates. The problem is in the second half of the year. So we have $56.84 for the Q3. There it is. You see? Look how low the number is. The low print is the first quarter. Look at the third. 56.84 is an historic record. That would be an all-time record for the S&P for a print. And the fourth quarter, 58, that's even bigger. Here's the problem. To believe these numbers, you have to embrace the soft landing idea because that's an 18 multiple right there. Add that all up, it's $219. That's where the analysts are. The strategists, though, the Belsky crowd and everybody else, most of them are $200 to $210. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to distance themselves from this soft landing hypothesis that you have to believe to have that happen. Well, you get a recessionary multiple. You remember that 12, 13, 14? We're in the low 3,000s. We're not at 4,100. So somebody's wrong here, and the strategists are trying to get a little distance. Yeah, for the moment, the market's like, all right, I see your Harvey, I see your Belsky, but I'll <laughs> raise you a yelling, at least for the moment, <laughs> exactly. right in the comments that, that the Treasury Secretary was making. Bob, thanks. Okay. I'll see you in a couple hours on Closing Bell. Coming up, a special Grade My Trade, Congressional Bank Stocks Edition. The details are next. All right, welcome back. Now to a special congressional edition of Grade My Trade. There is new reporting from the Wall Street Journal showing that two lawmakers traded a number of bank stocks as they worked on the regional bank failure fallout. Representative Nicole Maliotakis, a Republican from New York, bought stock in New York Community Bank Corp before a subsidiary, Flagstar Bank, agreed to take over Signature Bank's deposits. Days before she bought the stock, she said she met with financial regulators to discuss Signature's closure. According to the Journal, Representative Earl Blumenauer, a Democrat from Oregon, reported three trades in bank stocks as he co-sponsored legislation seeking to strengthen restrictions on financial firms. One trade was a sale of Bank of America shares on March 9th. The next day, regulators seized control of SVB. He had also bought shares of SVB itself on the 9th, obviously a trade that didn't turn out so well. He also sold shares of First Republic on March 20th as that stock cratered. All of this contained in that Wall Street Journal report. Now, Representative Blumenauer said in a disclosure that all three trades were part of his wife's retirement portfolio. A spokesman for Representative Maliotakis said she made the trade in NYCB at the recommendation of her financial advisor. So, Joe, I'm going to you first. 
You can grade the various trades, some of which worked out well, some of which did not. And of course, it raises the overarching issue of how do we allow our elected representatives to trade individual stocks while they are making the policies that guide our companies? Because there needs to be the creation of some form of a compliance or regulatory body that has oversight over them. I'm going to use a lot of terms we use in the financial services industry, such as an access person, such as a restricted individual. And that's, in fact, what members of Congress ultimately are. Um, the covered persons rule that we all need uh, to adhere to in the financial services industry, that needs to be applied to members of Congress. When we're thinking about members of Congress, there's no reason for them to trade individual stocks. If they what would you give the Maliotakis trade of I mean, NYCV? This, this, enti this, enti this entire thing is it's an F. It's up 20.5% in, in, it's, in it's a all, month. It's, it's, it's all an F. It's all an F. It's all an F because the right rules are not in place. There's not a, a regulatory body, a compliance body, that is imposing a blackout period on congressional members when there's such a critical industry that's experiencing well, I mean, they stress. Are, they have over, might need yeah, but they, they have oversight over, over everything. Shouldn't be able to trade. Over, over the minute everything. that Silicon Valley Bank became an issue for the FDIC, at that point, no member of Congress should have been able to transact okay. for a 60 to 90 day period Bryn, in the industry. Bryn, yeah. what's, your, what's your take here? Do you have any grades for these trades? Yeah. Oh, some yeah. good, oh, yeah. some bad? Oh, yeah. So, bad that you bought all, SVB on the 9th. That didn't work out so well. First yeah, Republic on that. March 20th. That didn't, that didn't work out so well either. NYCB worked out. I would say the rules are for thee and not for me. And not only am I going to give them an F, I'm going to kick them out of my class and I'm going to expel them from the school. So nothing more needs to be said after that. It's just such poor form, but so unsurprising. Jenny? Well, it reminds me of in the pre-COVID, you know, pre-public announcements about COVID. And then we found out in the aftermath how many people were trading on that. And it was really disgusting. And it's super upsetting to me because if you knew the rigor that we all need to adhere to, to make sure that we never get a better price on, on a stock than a client, all the SEC oversight that we're under and the intense pressure and scrutiny of that, it is so distressing to see that the, that you know, lawmakers in Congress can do whatever they want, apparently. And yep. I do know, we have clients who are in the government, and I do know that you need to fill out these forms, and they're very difficult, and you adhere to them. But you know what our advice is? Sell every stock you can as soon as you get a government job, and buy ETFs, because you never, ever, ever want to be on the wrong side right. of this trade. We got to go. Uh, speaking of trades, we got finals next. Hmm. All right, 3 o'clock Eastern. Two hours from now on Closing Bell, going to be joined by John Mowry. He is one of the most bullish strategists that I have spoken with in recent months. We'll find out if he still is today. Liz Young will be there. Jason Hunter, too, of J.P. Morgan's technical uh, strategy team. Uh, they always game out CPI. They tell you what they think the market could do based on different reads, just like Goldman did today. He's going to be with us as well. Quickly, Brent, I need a final trade. I'm RYE, Equal Weight Energy, 25 names. But I like them all. Okay, Jenny. SL Green. I'm standing by commercial real estate. All right. <laughs> Rising Jill. oil, Hess. All right. I will see you in a couple hours on Closing Bell. Does it for us. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. 
You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a, like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.